Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, I was going to include a little introduction so you could get to know my wife and I, but he already covered that base, which saves me a little time, so that's good. <laughs> um, but it is true, yes, I, I serve as a deacon at Missio Church. I oversee the worship ministry there. Uh, my day job is I work for NBT Bank. I have the best job in the world. I stand there all day and people give me money. I love it. Um, my wife is here with me. She's from Florida. Believe it or not, she loves this weather. Like, so that was the first sign that she was crazy, and then she married me, so now I really know she's crazy. But uh, uh, we're super happy to be here with you today um, to be able to worship together and to be able to explore the riches of God's Word together. Um, I love this. You guys are in a series called Under the Word, and you've been looking at the biblical reasons for why we worship the way that we do. And I love that you're doing this. Missio did something similar to this a few months back uh, through a doxology series, and we looked at the biblical reasons behind why we sing, and I think that was an important milestone in our church history together, because I think in our day and age, um, there's a lot of cultural trends. There's, uh, you know, just all kinds of different technology out there. We see all these different ways by which a church service can be delivered to a person. I see a lot of churches that are enabling people to be withdrawn from the church itself and still think that they're participating uh, at home. And we see a lot of pressure from modern evangelicals to rethink how we worship. But if worship was instituted by God for himself, I think his preference matters, right? And uh, so I'm just, I'm really excited that we're, we're taking some time to look at God's preference. And he's made it clearly seen in his word. Uh, it's right there for us to know. And in fact, his word really is the center. It's at the core of all worship that's done in spirit and in truth. Two weeks ago, um, you looked at how we're called to worship, that our worship is a response to who God is, and it's a response to what he's done. Well, who is he? What has he done? We need to look to the Word to know these things. Last week, you, worked, you looked at um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we see that the proclamation of the Word of God to the people of God is central to all Christian worship. We saw in Luke where Jesus charged his disciples to proclaim his Word, his death, his resurrection, the repentance and forgiveness of sins that is in his name. We saw that the disciples in Acts, they devoted themselves to the ministry of the word. We saw where Paul charged Timothy to give himself to the ministry of the word. And we looked at how the word of God is uniquely revelation, that it uniquely saves us, that it's uniquely profitable for us, and that it uniquely protects us. And we looked at how if our worship then is a response to God, then as John Piper said, the heart of worship must be the revelation of God himself, and he has ordained to be known mainly by his word. And this week we're going to look at congregational singing. Worship leader, now you know why I'm leading this one. <laughs> we're going to be looking at congregational singing. We're going to see that the exact same rules apply. This is no different. God God's word is to be central to our congregational singing. And so we're going to be looking at how con congregational singing that is centered on God's word is not only glorifying to God, but it's actually edifying to his people. Turn me, with me, if you will, today to our text for the day. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, 16. I'll give you a second to turn there today. Colossians 3.16, let's read it together. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I'm going to read it again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. God, we thank you that you haven't left us clueless, God, that we truly can know you, God, that you've revealed yourself as you saw fit through your word. And God, you've given us a helper, your Holy Spirit, that causes us to embrace and to understand it. It points us to the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, who himself is, him and his gospel, the culmination of your word. This is the fulfillment of your word, God. And we look to your word today, God, to know you better. God, we want to know you more. We need it, God. And today we look to your word to understand better what it is that we do when we come together as the people of Christ. So we pray, God, that you would shape our understanding. Shape our understanding today, God. Let the words that we hear be your words. Cause your word, Father, not just to be something that we remember in our minds, but cause it to take root in our hearts, God. Cause us to, Father, not only um, know it, but to embrace it, God. To hold it close, to cling to it, Father. We need it. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for his glory. Amen. Well, you and I use a lot of everyday common items to accomplish specific purposes. Things that maybe we are so familiar with, we don't take time to like think about their intricate design. We just use them for whatever they're made to be used for. Like take a ballpoint pen, for instance, right? How many of us would say that we use a ballpoint pen on a day-to-day basis or maybe a few times throughout the day, right? So we know that its big picture purpose, if you will, is to help us to write. We know that's what a pen's used for, so we don't think twice about it. We just pick up the pen and we write. When was the last time that you picked up a pen and beheld the marvelous engineering that went into that that big ballpoint pen? Anybody do that recently? No, because we're so familiar with it, right? But have you ever noticed that at the tip of the cap of a ballpoint pen, there's a hole in the lid? I'm going to bring up an image here on the screen to kind of show you what I'm talking about. Maybe you've noticed this. See that hole at the top of the cap? Doesn't that seem strange to you? Like, isn't the idea of a cap, we know when you put a cap on a marker, it's to keep it from drying out, right? So why would you put a hole in the cap of a pen? Wouldn't that make it dry out? Or isn't the cap supposed to stop the ink from exploding all over your pocket should the pen explode? So why would you put a hole in the tip of the cap? Well, believe it or not, this is an intentional design. Next time you look at a pen, you'll see that there's a hole in the tip of the cap. It's a small built-in feature that helps it fulfill its big picture purpose of helping you write. It's actually put there for your safety. Believe it or not, that hole in the tip of the cap is there for people who have the annoying habit of chewing on pens. And if you accidentally choke on the pen cap, it prevents it from blocking your airway. So you can stay alive. You can't write. You can't do the big picture purpose of a pen if you're dead, right? So just know that BIC has your safety in mind. And public service announcement, if you chew on pen caps, just as your brother, I just want to tell you, stop it. It's so gross. It's disgusting. (laughs) Especially if you're single. It doesn't, you're not going to find anybody that way. <laughs> <laughs> 
This next illustration, I'm really hesitant to share it with you because the last time that I used this illustration, I swear it's the only thing that people remembered from my message. So reluctantly, I share it with you, and I just ask you, please remember the big connection today. But Chinese food, who, who here likes Chinese food? Man, I'll tell you what, it's like my go-to. If my wife Jillian and I, we're not sure what we want for dinner, we don't feel like cooking, nine times out of ten, there's going to be Chinese food in ten minutes, okay? And so you call it in, right? You place your order. You go to the Chinese place. You pick up your order. And your lo mein and your rice, they're in what? Like paper cartons, right? The little to-go cartons. And we know that the big picture purpose of those cartons is to get the food safely from the restaurant to your home, right? And also, if you're like us, if we're having Chinese for dinner, we're probably not setting the table. We're probably sitting on the couch and watching TV. So it's also holding our food for us while we eat, right? I'm going to put a diagram up. That's If you don't know this information already, it's going to blow your mind. Uh, but if you'll see here, there's a small built-in feature to these paper cartons. They're designed to unfold into a paper plate. Like, this is crazy. Some of you are thinking, this changes everything. <laughs> You're welcome. You're never going to look at takeout the same, right? But we see that the big picture purpose, right, is for it to carry our food safely from one place to the other, and we see the built-in feature allows it to fulfill that big picture purpose in more ways than one. I'm going to give you a second to just let this sink in, okay? Let that image just burn into your mind. But please promise me that you'll remember the connection, and the connection is this. We are all familiar with congregational singing, right? We do it week to week. We probably don't think twice about it if you're not a worship leader, right? It's just something we're familiar with. And I think that we would all agree that the big picture purpose of congregational singing is what? To glorify God, right? I mean, it seems like such a simple answer, right? Like, such a cheater answer. Why do we sing? To glorify God. Good job, right? But that's the biblical reason behind why we sing. But I think because we are so familiar with it, we don't look at how it's designed. We don't look at the built-in features that God has included that are a part of the reason why our congregational singing glorifies Him. The built-in feature that I want to talk about today is that congregational singing edifies the people of God. It edifies his people, and it does this in two very specific ways. It edifies God's people because, first, it helps us to embrace the word of God, and secondly, it does it in the context of true biblical community. It edifies God's people because it helps us to embrace the word of God, and it does it in the context of true biblical community. I want to break this statement down into its two parts. You can't really totally isolate the two. They're married together. But I want to look at each one and see how it affects us. So the first point, congregational singing edifies us because it helps us to embrace the Word of God. It helps us embrace God's Word. Now, in order to really flesh this idea out and just get a feel for what Paul is doing here, I want to look at the context within which Paul has inserted this command today. So Follow with me, if you will, back to the beginning uh, of chapter 3, verse 1, and let's, let's read it together. Here's what it says. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him 
and glory. I want to pause right there. So here basically Paul is saying that if any of us are in Christ, there's a new reality about your life. We've died. Our old self is dead. And then we've been raised with Christ. We are a new creation and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's there, plain for us to see. And those of us who have been brought from death to life through Christ, we are now presented from Paul with an imperative. Notice in these first four verses, he gives us two positive commands. The first one is in verse 1. It says, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. And then in the next verse, we see the second positive command. He says, set your mind on things that are above. So seek the things that are above, set your mind on things that are above. So as those who have been brought from death to life, we are to seek after, or in other words, set our hearts and minds upon the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If we look at the inverse of that, we're not to set our minds on the things that are here below. Instead, we're to set them on the things that are above. And then Paul, at this point, he launches into a discourse about putting to death then what's earthly in us, a.k.a. the old self. Things like sexual immorality, evil desire, and idolatry, they've all got to go. In verse 6, read with me, he says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. So as those in Christ, we are to put off the old self with its practices, right? And so then if we're putting off the old self with its practices, what are we putting on? The new self, right? Paul says, you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And don't miss this next part. Pay attention to what he says next. You have put on the new self, verse 10, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. What Paul is doing here is he's contrasting the old self with one of the most distinctive trademark characteristics of the new self. And what is it? It's that it's being renewed in the knowledge. It's being renewed in the image of its creator. In Romans 12, Paul says it this way. He says, don't be conformed to this world. So in other words, don't set your hearts and minds on the things of this world. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So as followers of Christ, right, we are to set our hearts and minds on the things that are above. We are to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. So you see, all of us in Christ then, it's like we're students, right? We are students being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator from the moment that we're found in him to the day that we die, and his worth is infinite. So after we die, when we are with him in his presence in heaven, there's always going to be something to learn about him. We are students, and so we should be hungry then to know the image of our creator. What is it? What is the image of our creator? We should be hungry to know what God has revealed about himself. We should be hungry to know what he has revealed about us And we should be hungry to know what he has revealed about his plan of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, how can we know these things? How can we be renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator? And today, Paul gives us our answer in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Hey, new man, do you want to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of your creator? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
And what's the word of Christ? It's the teachings of Christ. Christ showed us the Father. He revealed God to us. He revealed that he was one with God the Father. Christ showed how all of the scriptures pointed to him. Christ's teaching incorporated all of God's word, which culminated in the work of Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of Christ includes all that God has revealed about himself in his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. I notice he didn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in you, period. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? Like, if you think of this idea of richly, like, you think of an abundance. Like, if we're rich, we have an abundance of cash, right? Or if something that we're eating has, is rich, it's got an abundance of flavor, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let there be an abundance of it in you. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Colossians 3.16, he makes this distinction referring to the word of Christ dwelling in us. And this will be up on the screen for you. He says, It has come to us, but that's not enough. It must dwell in us or keep house. Not as a servant in a family who is under another's control, but as a master who has a right to prescribe to and to direct all under his roof. We must take our instructions and directions from it and our portion of meat and strength, grace and comfort in due season as from the master of the household. He then goes on to say, many of us have the word of Christ dwelling in them, but it dwells in them but poorly. It has no mighty force or influence upon them. The soul prospers when the word of God dwells in us richly, when we have an abundance of it in us and are full of the scriptures and of the grace of Christ. Amen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We're going to get to that in a moment, this idea of teaching and admonishing or correcting one another. But look at what Paul says next. He says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What Paul is doing here in this one statement, this one verse, he is linking together the word dwelling in us with teaching and with singing. He's linking these three things together so biblically, in a biblical context, they're all related to each other. Notice he doesn't even take the time to explain the connection, right? I love this. It's almost as if the connection between the word of Christ dwelling in us and teaching and singing is so natural that it doesn't have to be explained. If we look at the whole course of redemption, redemptive history all throughout God's word, we see that God's people are a singing people. We, see, we saw it when God delivered the Israelites, right, from the hand of Pharaoh, and they sang a song. We saw it all throughout David's life. We see it all throughout the Psalms. We see it all throughout the history of the new church where they were committed to the ministry of the word, and that included singing songs together, and were commanded countless times throughout scripture to sing. So there's no Christianity, really, without singing, if we think about it. And if we truly believe the gospel, if we truly take God at his word, we can't be quiet about it. But as Martin Luther once said, we must gladly and willingly sing and speak about it so that others also may come 
and hear it. As we're renewed in the knowledge of the image of our Creator, as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, as we contemplate what God has revealed about His character, what He's revealed about His attributes, what He revealed about His Son and His accomplishments through Him, songs should naturally follow. They should spill forth out of an overflow of the Word of Christ dwelling in our hearts. And as such, they should inherently be Biblical songs, right? They should be uh, tools for teaching. They should be tools for correcting as we express our praise to God Most High. Many have said with this in mind that we shouldn't include music outside of the Psalms. And no doubt, I really believe that we should be including the Psalms in our worship. If we have the opportunity to sing something straight from the canon of Scripture, man, let's go for it. What better way for the Word of Christ to dwell in our hearts, right, than to sing God's Word directly? Um, and so if we can do that, I, I think we should. Um, I didn't grow up singing the Psalms. I grew up in a church that was like hymns and then Maranatha praise choruses, and if we were lucky, we got like Sandy Patty or Michael W. Smith, you know? They snuck it right in under the radar. I've talked with people who grew up singing the Psalms and who are like, man, we got to include more of the Psalms. I'm like, okay, well, how do they go? I didn't grow up knowing them. And then they hand me a hymnal. And I'm like, oh, I don't really read music. Can you tell me how this goes? And then, so then I try to Google or look on Spotify, like Psalms, and it turns out only hipsters sing them. And they're really weird renditions and they don't translate to corporate worship. Or Shane and Shane does it and they totally crush it, but there's no way I'm going to replicate that. So it leaves us with a conundrum. So I think that there's an opportunity for the church, right, to be singing the psalms and make it accessible for the congregation to sing the word of God, okay? But I don't think that we're given any reason to believe that Paul's saying that you should only sing the psalms. Notice that he makes a distinction. He says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a lot of people that say, well, that all boils down to psalms. But I think if that were the case, he would have said, sing psalms and then sing some songs, and then after that, you should totally sing a psalm again. He says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I think that we can safely infer that we can be engaged in biblical congregational singing that is helping the word of Christ to dwell in us richly by using all three types of songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But the bottom line is, this is the non-negotiable. If we want our corporate singing to come in line with the instruction of Scripture that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly, what we must be absolutely certain of is that the lyrics to the songs that we sing must be biblical. If we are not quoting directly from Scripture, and most songs don't, if we're not quoting directly from Scripture with the words we're saying, all of the ideas, all of the thoughts that are expressed must certainly be scriptural, and they absolutely must align our hearts and minds with the truth of God's Word. In verse 16, we can easily see that the aim of this teaching, the aim of the admonishing, the aim of singing the psalms, the aim of singing hymns, the aim of singing spiritual songs is what? That the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Am I starting to sound like a broken record? Good. Maybe you'll forget about the Chinese takeout illustration. <laughs> Uh, Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor at Christ Covenant Church in North Carolina. He published a document entitled A Brief Theology and Philosophy of Worship. And in this document, he discusses the teaching benefit of our congregational singing. This might be on the screen. I don't know. I don't remember if I sent it, but I'll read it to you anyway. He says, Congregational song is a part of the teaching ministry of the church. 
Church musicians and pastors should ask themselves, if our people learn their theology from our songs, what would they know in 20 years about God, the cross, the resurrection, the offices of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, creation, justification, election, man, this is a long list, <laughs> regeneration, the church sacraments, and all the other fundamental doctrines of the faith? That's a pretty good question. That's one we should be asking. We should be learning from the songs that we're singing congregationally. And think about it. Songs can be such an incredible tool for learning. They're so effective. I mean, you think about how songs can make an idea resonate in our hearts and minds better than spoken words sometimes, right? And even their elements and their structure, their meter, their rhyme, they all serve as tools to help us to retain and to remember. Think about how difficult it would be for you to go home today and remember my message verbatim. Nobody's going to be able to do it. I'm not offended. It's just not how we're wired, right? But how many of you, if you heard a song on the radio that you grew up to as a teenager and you could sing it from start to finish from memory, right? Or how many of you could go home today and recite one of the worship songs that we did today, recall that biblical doctrine verbatim from memory? It's an amazing thing, and it's the genius of God that he would use songs as part of helping us to retain the word of God. Songs can be an incredibly useful tool for worship and help us learn and recall biblical doctrine. And so as such, the aim of our congregational singing must be in line with the rich indwelling of the word of God in our hearts. They must help us to embrace the word of God. So truth number one, congregational singing is edifying to God's people because it teaches us, and above and beyond teaching us, I think that, that it helps us to embrace. There's this idea of the heart being behind it. If you're embracing, you're clinging to Maybe you're clinging to it with white knuckles, but clinging to it, it helps us to embrace God's word. My second point is this, that, that congregational singing is edifying because it promotes true biblical community. It's done in the context of true biblical community. In verse 16, we see, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing who? Who are we teaching and admonishing? One another right? Paul in Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, he says it this way. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I honestly think that this command to address one another in songs, I think it's often overlooked today. I don't think that we really contemplate the fact that we're called to sing to each other, I think maybe it's because we get this notion that congregational singing is just a whole bunch of us as individuals expressing praise to God, and it's, it's going this way. We don't think about it going this way as well, right? And maybe this seems like a foreign concept to some of us. We can all agree that as we gather and sing on a Sunday, God's our primary audience, right? There's no question God's our primary audience. He is receiving our praise and our adoration, it's inherent in a lot of the, the lyrics to our songs. We see it displayed in so many of the psalms that God is the, the primary audience member. But God can still be our primary, primary audience as we raise our voice to edify other people. The two can coexist together. 
God can be our primary audience as we address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As we declare his worth, think about it this way, it serves as a rallying cry. It's a rallying cry. We're saying to those around us, consider him and join me in singing songs. By singing, we're inviting other people to delight in God. It's an invitation. Going back to the context of Colossians 3, I, I want us to consider how putting on the new self informs this approach to our congregational singing. If you look back with me at how it affects our fellowship, verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says this. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. This is what it looks like when we're putting on the new self. And, and when we, this is where we come to our text, our command today. And so we see as part of putting on the new self, as part of setting our minds on the things above, and as part of being renewed in our knowledge of the image of our creator, Paul lists this whole slew of things that should be true of us, right? And I want us to notice the common denominator of all these things. They're all in line with the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit, they all are bent towards others, if you think about it. All these things that Paul is listing here for our fellowship and our biblical community are all postures bent towards others. Those are the trademarks of biblical community. And so when we're commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, when we look at it in the context of what Paul has given it to us as, it's not something that's meant to be private. It's not meant to exist in isolation from the body of believers. The word of Christ dwelling in us richly is not something that's meant to be kept to ourselves. We are called to one body. And the word of Christ dwelling in us richly is meant to benefit that entire body as much as it benefits us. It's to be shared. It is to be proclaimed. We are called to teach each other. We are called to encourage one another. We are called to admonish or correct one another and to restore one another with it. And we are called to do it in peace, in unity, and in love. So, when we're singing in our services, it's, just, it's not just the entertainment portion of our service. It's not just the nice segue to the message or the nice bow that wraps up the whole service. When we sing, we are reminding each other of eternal truths that are found in God's Word. And as we do this, it forms a lasting bond between us. We're not just singing to God, we're singing to one another. And think about, think about this. I mean, can we just park here for a second? Think about what encouragement comes from this. What edification comes from being reminded that we are part of something that is so much bigger than ourselves. So much bigger than even what's happening in this room. When we come together and sing truths that have been established 
from before the foundations of the earth. Truths that have been proclaimed in song for generations. When we do this, we're joining with the song of the capital C, Church of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, he put it this way. It is the voice of the church that is heard in singing together. It's not you that sings, it is the church that is singing. And you, as a member of the church, may share in its song. It's awesome. Thus, all singing together that is right must serve to widen our spiritual horizon and make us see our little company as a member of the great Christian church on earth and help us willingly and gladly to join our singing. I love this part. Be it feeble or good. (laughs) To the song of the church. So when we come together, this morning we sang an old hymn. We dusted it off and sang it together. When we do that, we join in the song of generations of faithful followers of Christ. And this reminds us that our faith, God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what? They're not trends. They're not a fad. They didn't spring up overnight. It's not a flash in the pan. We didn't make this up. These are timeless truths. They transcend generations, and they are established forever. And each time that we come together and sing, we have the most incredible opportunity to turn each other's face towards these things and say, hey, consider God. Seek Him. Set your mind upon Him. Be renewed in your knowledge of the image of your Creator. Consider what He has done and sing with me. Come and magnify His incredible worth with me. Amen? Congregational singing edifies us by helping us to embrace God's word while promoting true biblical community. There's no way around it. That's how God has designed it. That is the built-in feature by which he is glorified when we come together and sing. There's a whole slew of applications on what we've learned together today. A lot of them. There's some applications uh, for people in a role such as mine or Matt's where we're leading worship. There's things that we need to consider. There are applications for all of us who are putting on the new self, who are found in Christ. There's applications for all of us in this. And there are some applications for those of us who have never placed our faith in Christ, who have never responded to his gospel. I want to unpack these today. Uh, First application, I'll talk to the worship leaders. I'll get us out of the way, Matt. (laughs) Um, For somebody who's engaged in leading God's people in congregational singing, I had better make sure that the way that I go about it is serving the big picture purpose of glorifying God through the use of the built-in features that he's designed into this exercise of our faith. I should be promoting the inward dwelling of God's word and a sense of true biblical community when I lead. We shouldn't be uh, singing songs that are not biblical. Our songs should be biblical, and our song catalog should cover a wide variety 
of biblical topics. We don't want them all to be pooled. Just in, I see this happen so much. They're all pooled in God's love, right? Or God's holiness. And those seem to be like the two places where we camp out or when you listen to the radio. That's where it always seems to camp out. But our song should include the, just the vastness of everything that's been revealed about God and His Word. We should be learning from them. We shouldn't be singing songs that are too open for interpretation or whose meaning is shallow or unclear. If there's a song that says it better, throw this one out. Let's get rid of it. I recently just went to an event and there was a ton of worship music there. <laughs> Can I just tell you, I don't know what they thought the gospel was. I, I mean, I walked away and I'm like, gosh, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think we're brothers and sisters. I have no idea what they believe, really. It was pretty subjective. And anybody gathered in that place could have had their own notion of God and gotten through that entire service and never been challenged. And we all walked out thinking that we served the same God. That's a problem. Our songs should be precise and clear in line with God's word. We should be challenged. And maybe there should be a song in there where, gosh, we're wrestling with it. But our songs should be very clear. They shouldn't be shallow. We shouldn't be drowning out the voice of the church with our instruments. We should use instruments. I think that's part of how uh, songs really make ideas and thoughts come alive. But we shouldn't be drowning out the voice of the church. And do you know why? Because in congregational singing, the most important sound is the voice of the Church of Christ. There's no more important sound than that. As awesome as that guitar sounds, as much as we love those drums, the church's voice is what should be heard and what should be proclaimed in worship. And we should also be leading in such a way where the church is mindful of each other. We should go out of our way to not promote an individualistic approach to worship, a me and God experience. And I see this happening so much. I've been in a whole bunch of services where, and I've seen it online, I've seen it on TV, where they put everybody in a dark room, right? You can't even see your neighbor. Like, how are you supposed to remember that you're part of a community thing that's happening? And then you see this band up in lights and you're just kind of watching them and it's like, it's inconsequential whether or not I participate in that context. I think it really kind of, really in a subtle way, it, it kind of promotes this private individual experience with you and God. And we should be going out of our way to not do that. If we're coming together as a congregation to sing, we should be making sure that we're leading in such a way that reminds people that they're a part of each other's formation in this process, and we should make each other aware as we're singing. Um, secondly, for all of us who have been raised with Christ and who are found in Him, all of us who are being renewed in the image of our Creator, I have three specific applications for us. Here goes the broken record thing. If you walk away with one thing today, first application let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. As somebody who's been brought from death to life, as somebody who's been called to set their hearts and minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, as somebody who's been called to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of their creator, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If we think about putting on the new self, right? Like putting on clothes, we put both pant legs on in the morning, right? We zip them up, we button them. For the love of God, put a shirt on, right? <laughs> Don't be haphazard about putting on the new self. Suit up. 
Going back to what Matthew Henry wrote, don't let it be said of you that the word of Christ dwells in you poorly with no mighty force or influence on your life. Let it be your meat. Let it be your portion. Let it instruct and correct and teach you. Let it dwell in you so richly that when you come here on a Sunday morning, you've just got to sing. Come to Sunday's morning, Sunday morning service full of the word of God. We're told to teach one another. We're told to correct one another. Don't expect to teach somebody something you're out of touch with. Don't expect to teach somebody something that you're out of touch with. Know that when we read today's command, it tells you to teach and to admonish and to rally people to delight in God. So don't make a habit of coming here on Sunday running on empty. Read God's word. Pray that God would give you a hunger to grow in your knowledge of the image of your creator. Read the word with your spouse Read it with your family, read it with your friends, read it with your roommates, talk about it. Contemplate something that you read in it in the morning throughout the day, like this idea of meditating on God's word day and night. I think we get this idea in our heads like Rafiki in The Lion King where he's sitting cross-legged with his arms out like this. He's like, um, correction, I know your father. So, meditation could be as simple as remembering something that you read in the morning periodically throughout the day and reflecting on it. Meditating on God's word can be the same as opening up a passage of the Psalms and praying it word by word, line by line. God, thank you for this truth. Take time to memorize the word of God. What an incredible way for it to dwell in us richly, right? If we've committed it to memory. Have somebody help you with it if you need it. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Know that maybe you need to partner with somebody for that to happen. It is a community biblical context thing. Secondly, second application, first is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Second application is know that you're not an island. You don't exist in isolation. Having been raised in Christ, you are called to community. There's no way around it and you are not the exception to this rule. You are called to be a part of your brother's and sister's formation and guess what? They're called to be a part of yours. As you are continually renewed in the knowledge of the image of your creator, put on the new self. It's a life that is bent towards others in line with the, the gifts or the fruit of the Spirit. And be humble enough to let others serve you in the same way. Don't adopt a me and God policy. Don't think that you fly above teaching and correction. And don't treat Sunday morning as if it's your own personal devotion time with you and God, because it's not. Serve the body and let the body serve you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Know that you're not an island. Third application today is this. Sing. Man, alive, sing. We have so much to sing about. You don't even have to be good. That's why the Psalms say make a joyful noise. <laughs> but your church needs to hear you sing. Don't let individualistic tendencies take over on a Sunday morning. Love your church body enough to serve them through singing and know that your voice raised in glorifying God has an impact on the people sitting around you. Maybe there's somebody here who struggles with guilt and shame. They need to hear you proclaim my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Maybe somebody sitting among us today struggles with feeling the burden, the need to earn God's favor. And they need to hear us sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Or maybe the words to a hymn you might not be familiar with. It's called, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. But it says this, Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is justice, smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Maybe there's somebody sitting among us today who has lost their way. They wonder if God could really save them. Maybe they feel like they're too far gone. They need to hear your story. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Sing with the one who delights in these things. Sing with the one who's having a hard week. Sing for the one who struggles with doubt. Sing for the one whose marriage is hanging on by a thread. And you know what? It's been a lot of people I know this year. We need to sing for them. Sing for the one who's buried under heavy burdens. Sing for the one who's struggling with addiction. Sing, church. Sing. And for those of you here today who have yet to place your faith in Christ, maybe there's some of you here today, Know that in his providential care for you, he has allowed you to hear the gospel proclaimed in song this very morning already. The church sings for you too. We sang this this morning. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. It's the gospel. What will you do with what you've heard today? What will your response be? I implore you in this moment to run to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the redemption, and the newness of life that comes only through him. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of your Son. And again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your amazing design for how you have ordained singing to be a part of congregational singing when your church comes together. And we thank you, God, for in your goodness, God, you've designed it to not only glorify you, but to edify us as your people. You use it to strengthen us and equip us. And God, we pray, Father, that you would help us, Father, to be people who are hungry to learn more about the image of our Creator, to grow more in our knowledge of the image of you, to know you more, God. We need to know you more, Father. And we pray, God, that as your word dwells in us richly, Father God, that songs would naturally follow, that we would not be able to be quiet about our amazing God that we serve. We thank you, God, that you have not left us as orphans. You've called us to relationship with you, and God, you've called us to relationship with your church. 
We thank you for our brothers and sisters, God, who are a part of our formation. Thank you that we get to be a part of theirs, God. May the way that your church operates in this way, God, be glorifying to you as they are edified for your glory, God. We pray even now in this moment, God, that as we sing to close out our service, God, that you would use us as your people to take each other's face and point us to Jesus Christ. Get a hold of our hearts and our minds like only you can by your spirit. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.